Welcome to the Historia's podcast. I'm Foster Chamberlain. Today, I'm excited to introduce a new initiative called Historias for BSPHS, a collaboration between this podcast and the Bulletin for Spanish and Portuguese Historical Studies, in which we will interview some of the authors whose articles are published or whose books are reviewed in the journal. This first Historias for BSPHS episode is a roundtable on doing Iberian studies in times of COVID, inspired by Sarah J. Brennis's article for the latest issue of BSPHS entitled Research on Lockdown, Digital Scholarship in Madrid During the COVID-19 Pandemic. It is part of the journal's ongoing forum on doing Iberian studies in times of crisis. Sarah, a professor of Spanish at Amherst College in Massachusetts, joins us today as one of our first returning guests to the program. Also returning is Charles Nicholas Sines, an associate professor of history at Adams State University in Colorado. And finally, we welcome for the first time James D. Fernandez, a professor in New York University's Department of Spanish and Portuguese and director of NYU Madrid. So I thought we could start with you, Sarah, because in your article you describe how You were in uh, Madrid on sabbatical when the COVID-19 pandemic hit. Could you tell us about the project you were working on then and how it was impacted by the pandemic? Sure, Foster. I was working on an edition of the first Spanish concentration camp memoir that uh, was written by a survivor of the Mauthausen concentration camp who published his work in the Falanges newspaper, Arriba, in, in Spain in 1946. So I was based at the National Library there in Madrid. Um, they, have a, they have an actual newsprint copy of the source that I was using, uh, as well as having it on the microfilm. So it was very handy to be at the National Library. But at the same time, I, the, the story that I was trying to write about is so unusual, um, a concentration camp survivor who, who publishes his story in the, in the regime's uh, mouthpiece newspaper, that I needed to get some more background about um, the individual in center of this, of this tale. His name is Carlos Rodriguez de Risco. And as I'd uh, presented about this project at different conferences, occasionally I would have people say, "What? how do you know he existed? Uh, maybe he made the whole thing up. So while I was in Madrid, I, I started um, digging into the archives to see what traces of this individual I could find. And um, I was going off to you know, the Archivo General de la Administración in Alcalá to see if I could see if I could find some censorship reports about him. I went to the Archivo Histórico Nacional in Madrid just to see if I could find him on the on lists of um, Spaniards who exiled to France uh, after the end of the Spanish Civil War. And I even trotted over to the Ministerio del Interior there in Madrid to to put in person uh, a request for his police file. Um, and I'm, I'm not actually a historian by training, but this, so this was kind of an adventure for me to get into the archives. And I started to really uncover some interesting material. I found evidence of his existence when I went to Salamanca to the Centro Documental de la Memoria Histórica. Um, I, I was able to start proving um, you know, his existence, and I was really beginning to unravel his background. In fact, um, in March of 2020, right when the pandemic locked everything down, I had just, um, with the help of another historian, I had just found his daughter, who uh, is still alive, and, you know, I made contact with her, and then everything shut down. Well, that sounds like a uh, 
fascinating project and listeners may want to refer back to the earlier episode. But I imagine when the COVID pandemic struck, that did uh, hinder those efforts quite a bit. So <laughs> what were some of those impacts on your work? Yeah, so I mean, the very first impact was the fact that the National Library shut down. So the place I was basing my research and, and you know, I was I was working and still am working on an edited edition of these memoirs. So I was I was bringing in contextual information, you know, about the sort of minor historical figures uh, that I could that I could kind of explore and explain. And the, the library, the National Library had all the materials, all the reference materials that I was working with. But then at the same time, I hadn't quite gotten to all of the archives I wanted to see in Madrid and everything shut down. So, you know, the very first impact was just, I had to find a way to keep going with the project while trapped in a small apartment with my two kids and my partner and, you know, work uh, as much as I could. I was still in Spain. The initial turn was really just to, okay, what, what can I find to keep doing this research online? And can I reach out to the archivists? Are they willing to work with me? You know, at the, we all recall at the very beginning, we didn't realize that this was gonna shut things down for as long as it did. So I had some hope that, you know, maybe in a few weeks I would actually get back to the archives. So some of my initial um, adjustments were, well, I'm gonna write, you know, I'll write a correspond with archivists and see, you know, can you digitize some materials for me or can you send it to me or can you have it warm and ready for me when I can come back into the archives. Um, and when that became stretched on and eventually we had to think more about leaving Spain than, than staying, then I started to really dig into what I could find in, mostly in sort of periodicals like military gazettes and other, you know, La Vanguardia from Barcelona has their entire backlog um, digitized. So I kind of turned from archival work more to work in, in digital periodicals that I could get my hands on. But then kind of kept the, the flames alive in the archives by corresponding with local historians. You know, I, I reached out, I did some cold emailing of, of people contacts to see if anybody could help me um, find some materials. And I, you know, I turned up some incredible things with the help of uh, folks in Spain, be they archivists or um, historians who were, who were able to do a little bit more of the in-person trotting around um, than I would have been able to do under lockdown, but there still was a cooling effect um, on the research as a, as a whole. Yeah, well, I think it's admirable that you found ways to um, keep in contact with some of these archives at all at a time when everything just sh suddenly uh, shut down when the pandemic started in Spain. So let's go to you now, Jim, because I understand that you were also in Madrid at the time and working on putting on an exhibit, in fact. Tell us a bit about your exhibit and how that was impacted by the pandemic. Sure, thanks so much, Foster. Yeah, in fact, Sarah and I saw each other at least once and had plans to see each other again. They were, they were uh, cut short by the, by the lockdown. So yeah, I'm, I'm currently the, the director of New York University in Madrid. And um, from January to April, of 2020, we had programmed what was going to be the culmination of 10 years of research. I've been working with Luis Argeo, who's a, a Spanish Asturian journalist and filmmaker, on a really unknown episode of Spain-US history, 
which is the presence in the US of tens of thousands of working class Spaniards in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, really, very few people know much about this at all, but 4 million Spaniards emigrated to the Americas in the post-imperial world, right? Between 1850 and 1930, that's the number that's, that's um, often used. Um, the vast majority went to Spanish-speaking America, particularly Cuba and Argentina, Uruguay, Mexico. So millions of Spaniards show up in the Americas in the second half of the 19th century, most of them in Spanish-speaking America, but tens of thousands of them end up in the United States, some after having been in Havana, say, but others coming directly from Spain. And Luis and I got obsessed with this, with this story, trying to figure out uh, who came, where they came from, why they came, where they went, what they did, just to get to the nuts and bolts of that historical episode. And we realized early on that the only way to get, the best way to get at it was through family archives, that this was a history that was mostly available or unavailable in the private papers of descendants of immigrants, many of whom were convinced that their archives were of no historical interest, right? So mm -hmm. we, we put together this project, which we called Invisible Immigrants, Spaniards in the US, 1868 to 1945. And for 10 years, we traveled around the US and somewhat in Spain, digitizing photographs and documents and personal archives to try to get at the story of, of these Spaniards who, who, went, who went to the US. And we were so delighted that finally, these invisible immigrants were, were gonna become visible at a pretty, you know, a major exhibition at the Centro Cultural Conde Duque, which is a, a great venue in, in central Madrid. And we opened in January to great fanfare. It was a, it was a huge success in terms of audience and media. We got a lot of attention and uh, things were running full steam until, <laughs> you know, the pandemic starts and kind of, and then the lockdown comes, right? So the, so the exhibition, they became invisible again, right? 10 years of work mm -hmm. and all the effort to put the ex exhibition together and it, it get it up and running. And then from March until June, I think, the Conde Luque was just shut down. Uh, I came back to the States in late March. Um, I, I lived a couple of weeks of the strict lockdown that Sarah lived through completely, I guess, uh, and then was able to come back to New York. A couple of friends kind of snuck into the exhibition while it was closed. And so there's some amazing photographs of, um, of vinyls uh, peeling off of the walls in really interesting ways. And it, this, that's a whole other, we could do an exhibition on the, on the exhibition Confinado. But anyway, uh, in June, things started to open up a little bit and the Conde Duque was able to uh, reopen with the special schedules and, and, and sanitary measures. Um, and it, the exhibition, and they extended the run through November. So from June to November, the show was up and receiving small groups, you know, there's the 33 uh, limited capacity. The capacity was, was limited at 33 people at a time. But by then I was back in Spain and I was delighted to see that people were actually lining up, up across the big patio in the Conde Duque to get in to see the exhibition. So it was a fantastic experience and really eerie because of what I was saying before that, that um, the play of visibility and invisibility that, that played out once again, once the, once the show was up. Yeah, but that's great that you were able to give these stories some visibility despite what must have been a shocking experience when everything suddenly um, shut down almost a yeah. year ago now. 
I also have to ask you, since you do run this uh, NYU Madrid program, what was the impact of the pandemic on the study abroad program? Well, that was a, that was another pretty dramatic, traumatic uh, experience because we pretty much right around the time of the of the firm lockdown. I forget the exact date, but it was March 10th or 12th, maybe when, when President Sanchez went on TV and said, <laughs> stay home. Um, we, we evacuated 150 students uh, in, a, in a couple of days. It was pretty, pretty crazy experience and pretty much trained our faculty on the fly to deliver the rest of their courses online. And so we managed to, to finish the semester. The students finished all their coursework online and, and we've been trying to figure out what to do since then. The summer we did fully remote in a fully remote way, which is a, a real sin sentido, right? For a remote study abroad remotely doesn't quite cut it, right? And we're we're remote again uh, in in the spring semester and trying to think about what's going to come down the come down the pike. But I would I would say, and you know maybe we can go there later in the conversation. But even though. Uh, digital technologies and remote instruction or remote learning seem to be totally out of place in the context of a study abroad program, which is all about being there and immersion. I have realized, and I think my faculty and staff have realized that there are, there are tools and opportunities that we can uh, and should latch onto, that, that there are opportunities here for us to do, uh, to do things better. And I think about this in terms of my own teaching Right, I, I feel like my big my big lesson from all of this is uh, I feel terrible at having taken for granted the in-person nature of my students for all of these years. You know, I've realized now that I've kind of I've kind of had a monopoly on my students' presence. You know, I, I could count on three hours a week of them being forced to be with me, you know? <laughs> and we just took that as a birthright. As and and now now I cherish you know when when you actually can be physically with your students. I hope us educators, we educators, will see it as as the treasure that it is, and make the and make the best use of it. And and there again, I think I've, I urged my faculty in Madrid to think about the way they teach in person and to think about you know of a seventy five minute session, are there fifteen minutes that maybe you would do better offline, and then free up fifteen minutes to really do things when you have your students when you have that treasure of presencialidad to do things that you can't do any other way. And I do think that, I hope that that's one of the big lessons that we take away from this. Go, you know, this talk about going fully remote, I'm not really interested in that, but using remote uh, as a tool to enhance in-person learning, I think is something that either we're gonna, that we need to, that we need to seize. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And that's something that I've been thinking about uh, in my teaching as well. So now, Nick, I'd like to go to you because you have a bit different perspective on this story since you were actually in the U.S. when the uh, pandemic began, although you were also studying Spain. How did the pandemic affect your research on Spain uh, coming from the U.S. side of the pot? Yeah, Foster. Uh, well, so I, I was not, as you mentioned, in Spain. I was uh, in Colorado. Uh, prepping to go to Spain. Um, I filed for sabbatical October 1st, uh, 2019. So uh, before anybody was, you know, using this, this, this word COVID uh, to talk about what was coming. 
And uh, I, had, I had proposed uh, a year-long sabbatical or a semester-long sabbatical, depending on funding. In the spring, I was set to find out whether or not I was going to be able to do a, a full year uh, with, with various uh, forms of support. Uh, as you might imagine, pretty much all of that funding just disappeared in the spring. Uh, and so um, I, I was both at the same time uh, looking at closed borders where I, I couldn't travel to Spain and the absence really uh, of funding to do a lot of the, the things I was hoping to do. Uh, on an earlier Historias podcast, uh, I talked about my dissertation. The, the, the plan originally was for me to go to Spain and pull some additional documentation to kind of mold that project into uh, something that dealt a little bit more uh, with yellow fever. Uh, and so COVID kind of killed the yellow fever, at least for, for, for now, in terms of where my project is, is headed. I will probably be returning to that, um, you know, here in a few years. But in the short term, realizing that uh, foreign travel was, was not really something that was going to be all that certain and still wanting to, to use my sabbatical time to, to produce something, um, I, I pivoted a little bit. Uh, and in a different direction. And now I'm doing doing some stuff more on uh, Spanish colonial New Mexico, uh, which is very close to me. And so uh, it has really uh, redirected in some ways my, my attention, certainly uh, of late uh, down an avenue that was kind of peripheral to what I was doing. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see if that, um, what the sort of long-term effects of that, I, I guess, are. But, uh, you know, spring was uh, certainly for me a, a, a time of really coming uh, to grips with the fact that so much of what we do depends on that physical setting of being able to go to places like the AHN uh, and uh, to, to Alcala uh, to, to visit these places and see firsthand, you know, kind of a little bit of a su surprise uh, of sorts of just how much uh, really still isn't uh, scanned and available digitally. Uh, when I was doing research for my dissertation about a decade ago, I, I, at that time I was thinking, you know, in a few years, probably all of this is going to be digitized. It's all going to be accessible. And, and while there are some great digital tools uh, that have emerged uh, over the past decade, I, I, I think uh, at the same time, there was a real wake up call uh, for me, just to the extent to which, you know, the, the world hasn't changed uh, overnight. Um, scanning all these documents requires uh, people, it requires time, it requires money, uh, all things of which uh, in the humanities often is in short supply. So uh, really kind of uh, appreciating the limits that very much still exist in our, in our present setting with, with doing research um, on European topics from this side of the pond. It's... It, it's um, uh, just a, a really uh, important reminder of, of the significance that, that having access to the materials really plays in, in our ability to be productive scholars. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that your own story is kind of proof of that, that the fact that you couldn't get to Spain actually wound up making you start an entirely different project. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, and I, I should say it wasn't entirely uh, new. I had been working with History Colorado, which is the State Historical Society, for a few years uh, on an uh, exhibit also uh, with some of the museums in the Southern Colorado region. Uh, and so essentially I took uh, sort of a, a kernel of that larger project. And so I kind of had done some research in the back and I was able to kind of pivot in a direction uh, to exploit the the time we had in lockdown and uh, the sabbatical I now have to, to flesh that out and uh, keep moving uh, with some research in the hopes of getting something done. Well, hopefully both projects will come to fruition eventually. Now, I want to go back to you, Sarah, uh, for a minute because 
In your article, you describe the pandemic leading you to discover new sources online, but also leading you to develop a new appreciation for the importance of physical research, which I think Nick was just alluding to a bit as well. So I'd actually like to ask each of you, what did you learn from this experience of trying to do research during the pandemic? And how do you think it will change the way you work uh, going forward? And maybe Sarah, you can tell us a bit more about some of the online sources and also some of those personal connections that you made along the way. Yeah, and I, I absolutely agree with Nick that one of the realizations that happened was, you know, um, I, I had been grumbling. In fact, Foster, you and I may have talked about this down at the cafeteria at the, at the Biblioteca Nacional about how the cataloging systems of the Spanish archives are still fairly antiquated, that you really have to kind of be there to see those catalogs. And even above and beyond that, sometimes you even have to know the archivist or at least get in, in good, which was sort of a realization to me having been um, somewhat new to the to archival work. So, you know, what, what did I learn? Well, I, I found a number of sources that I list in the article that, that were fully online um, and that I found to be actually fairly flexible in terms of doing more overarching research in the database of bibliographical entries about Spanish historical figures, for instance. And, you know, the, even like the Spanish Communist Party has a, has a data, or the, it's actually the Socialist Party, the PSOE, has a, has a database of uh, biographical sketches of different people who were involved with, with the PSOE. So, you know, I, ma I managed to find some little nuggets of information that was, uh, was digitized and as I mentioned before, some of it was related to periodicals, the military, military periodicals, the virtual military library, I found actually to be a really rich resource. And in a kind of strange twist of fate, I stumbled on some of those resources via my uh, subject's daughter, who, when she sort of found out about the research I was doing and, and became really interested in also tracking um, the movements of her father and her family, she started Googling and she started sending me these articles about her, her grandfather, who was uh, a military presence during the Primo de Rivera regime and during that sort of the period in the 20s and, and as the Republic uh, sort of changed his role in the 30s. So she started sending me little clips that she'd find on Google, uh, just Googling. And I managed to sort of then back, work back from those and find the articles in, in different Emeroteca archives, the things that were, that were digitized. But the other realization that I had was really this, this idea that, um, as Nick was alluding to, the idea of, of place that's so important in our work that we may be able to do um, digital research, uh, research, remote research. We may be able to get into the few archives that have their, have their uh, resources digitized. But we don't get the sense of place that we need when we're working on a project that is so tied to a particular region, or in this case, different, for me, it was different spots in, in Spain where my subject had, had lived and had, had returned to after he, he survived the concentration camp. Not to mention that I obviously couldn't get to Mauthausen, to Austria, or to France to try to look through the archives and understand the places that he, he was living and he was deported to when, when he was in exile. But so the, this idea of the sense of place um, was, was something that I that sort of really dawned on me, um, including that I had really hoped to be able to go meet uh, his daughter and see the family archives. 
similar to what Jim spent 10 years doing, I wanted to go meet this person and understand who she was and, and see Santander, which is where her father ended up after he survived the camp. Um, she had photos, she had books. And we ended up talking on the telephone, which was great. You know, I, I, I interviewed her by, by a phone and we've kept in touch on email, but I still, I feel this sense of loss that I, I haven't seen his gravestone, for instance. I haven't been to these places that to me actualize the, story, the historical stories that we're trying to tell. And before the lockdown, you know, I, I was on the Metro, I was off digging up addresses, you know, residences, trying to figure out what, you know, what parts of Madrid this, this individual lived in and, and what his experience of the city and of Spain would have been like. And, um, and that literally wasn't possible. I wasn't re even really allowed to move around the city when um, the, the most, the severest lockdown happened. And then, as I said, we, we decided that we needed to return to the US and, and I haven't been able to get back to Spain to sort of, I really feel like that, that part of it, the in-person uh, research has, has taken a hit. And, and just a, a final note too about being in person is that as, as Jim mentioned too, the, the encounters that we have with colleagues and with you know, local historians, I know for uh, when you're sort of a, an early career scholar, that kind of thing seems a little bit like, how do you meet all these people? How do you get to know anybody? As you start to sort of feel more comfortable in your own research skin, it feels easier to reach out to people when you're, when you're in Spain and say, hey, can we get together for a coffee? I'd love to pick your brain. And I had some incredible encounters uh, with people in Spain who really pointed me in the right direction, gave me some great tips on, on where to look next. I went to some different um, events that, that you know, were uh, activists that surround the Spanish deportation, de deportation and memorialization of uh, Spaniards who went to Nazi camps. And none of those things can happen remotely. They, they really, you really have to, have to be more in person for that kind of in-depth um, place-based research. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's something that I've always felt as well when I did my research in Spain. Now, Jim, um, it was already very interesting um, what you were telling us about the appreciation for those opportunities when we can actually have um, our students in the classroom. Is there anything else that you think you learned from the these wild experiences that you had during the pandemic? Unlike um, Sarah and Nick, I was, I was at a different phase in my research project process. So I wasn't, during the months when the pandemic hit, I wasn't struggling to produce original research. I was more like in the dissemination, you know, promoting the exhibition and doing visits and such. And so my, my research per se wasn't deviated or derailed or anything like that. But the pandemic has made me think a lot about not, not so much the research process itself, but more the, the dissemination process, the communication, right? Because the way we communicate our research changed overnight and hopefully in some ways, in some ways for the better. In, in the same way I was talking about teaching before, I do think it's incumbent on us to think about the way we spend our time and money. I don't want to badmouth um, academic conferences that certainly have their place, but you know, when you can't go to a conference for a year, in the same way that you come to cherish presence, you know, students present, I think we need to uh, be more mindful of how we use our resources in, in getting together uh, at, in academic conferences, whether conferences are always the best way or whether if we're at a conference, if we're actually making the best use of our time being together. 
I think yeah, I've learned that there's a, there are a lot of things that can be done, like what we're doing right now. <laughs> and the, the four of us are, are, it's not the same as being together, but we wouldn't have met had this not happened. And here we are kind of thinking together. And I think that's a, that's a fantastic thing. That's something that I really noticed as well, even during this podcast, that I only started doing the remote recording once the pandemic began. And I realized that I was suddenly able to interview a lot of people that I had never been able to meet with in person and do new things such as this round table or interview people right after their books came out. So yeah, it actually wound up making me discover some new opportunities. The question of like, when is being there absolutely necessary or, or it's, it's not as straightforward as, as one thinks. That's what I've come to realize. Right. And what I've noticed is that like for, for executive things, these kinds of meetings are really good. I mean, you can, you can, if it's a matter of making a decision and saying, okay, you do this, you do that. That's really good. But there's a lot of things that we do where we need to waste time together and waste time entre comillas. You know, there's a lot of creativity and innovation that happens from kind of non-programmed being together. And I, I, th- I think it's because, I don't know how much I'm older than you guys, right? But, but I, I can remember like um, going to Spain and having to feed coins into the, into the cabina to talk. You know, the time is money and communication costs. And like when I'm on Zoom or when I'm on the phone, or I'm, I'm, I have in the back of my mind that this is sort of um, metered. And I think innovation and creativity and trust and teamwork all depend on unmetered, kind of unfettered, unagended time. Uh, and that's hard, hard to think about. I think academic conferences, good ones, do provide those kinds of encounters. Of course, our critics say, oh, these guys are wasting their time in the hotel bar. And maybe there's some of that too. But you know, you know what I'm saying. We have to figure out, it's not just a matter of saying, okay, you need, to, you need to do all your business online and stop flitting around the country. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But we can, we can rethink the way we, we spend time together and make the most of it. And when remote connections work, make them, make them work. Now, I wanted to ask the same question to you, Nick. And I'm wondering, in particular, since we were talking about the importance of place in at least some of our work, did that actually influence your decision to begin a project specifically focused on Colorado? Yeah, so I I live basically in the setting uh, of my new project. And so I'm researching a Spanish military campaign from 1779, led by Juan Bautista Danza, who was the the governor of uh, Spanish colonial New Mexico at that time. Uh, But essentially, this combines Spanish, Apache, uh, Ute, Pueblo, campaign against the Comanches traips right around my house. So I can, I can go visit physically uh, all of the sites uh, that uh, are, are, are mentioned in the campaign journal, uh, many other sort of uh, ancillary uh, events and developments. Uh, I can physically go to those places and, you know, look at the topography and uh, imagine things the way they were then and, and, and get that sense of place that, uh, as Sarah was saying, is so, uh, I think, so key to, to our ability to convey uh, what happened uh, in historical terms. You know, at the same time though, um, you you know, just because of proximity doesn't mean you're able to do all the things you would hope you'd be able to do. So uh, one of my hopes, uh, and and it's still a hope, uh, is to be able to speak with the tribes. And I've been working with their tribal historic preservation offices 
Um, now, as I think many people are aware, uh, the tribes have been in really strong lockdown. Uh, the Navajo have gotten a lot of national attention, but uh, the Hikaria and uh, the, the Ute reservations border the Navajo. And so uh, they haven't come out of lockdown. Um, and so, you know, we e even in our sort of loosened COVID mitigation efforts during the, the, the summer and, and early fall, um, still weren't having in-person interactions. Um, and, and even though we've been able to use uh, Zoom for most of our sort of university business, the, the tribes don't have great connectivity. Uh, and so Zoom just isn't functionally possible. And so um, I, I've been sort of waiting, hopefully, uh, to be able to incorporate uh, their oral testimony in, into the project. But, you know, Zoom can only do so much, right? It's not a solution, uh, a sort of cure-all for everything. At the same time, um, on, on the bright side of uh, trying to work within the, the confines of, of, of the pandemic, um, I was set to go to uh, UNM and have a visiting appointment there during my uh, sabbatical. To, to Jim's point about the ability to have those uh, interpersonal interactions, I was really looking forward to being resident in Albuquerque and having conversations uh, with other Spanish historians, you know, bouncing ideas off of them, formally over coffee or, or lunch and having people to read uh, my drafts. And, and certainly that can still happen. Uh, but there's uh, a certain energy, I think, when you're in that environment. I was set to be at their um, uh, Latin American and Iberian Institute. And so I was going to be surrounded by people who were looking at the same things that I was looking at. Uh, and UNM was gracious in allowing me to be a research associate, which means that I can remotely access their library collections, which is a, a tremendous boon. We're, we're a little bit limited here where I am in terms of our access to some material. So having uh, certainly the, the digital access to a large flagship state institution uh, has been really helpful. I've been able to get some stuff I, I wouldn't have been able to get solely through uh, my, my local uh, campus library, but uh, obviously not everything, right? <laughs> so uh, there, there are uh, archival things that have still not been scanned uh, in the Center for Southwest uh, Research that uh, I still need to go there in person. And so Santa Fe and Albuquerque are very close, but uh, New Mexico has very rigid um, travel guidelines right now. And so it, it's been sort of this uh, game of watching uh, the news to figure out, you know, when, when the window opens and when it closes and working with the uh, archivists and librarians to make sure that uh, they're safe and uh, they're making sure that I'm safe so that we can uh, both kind of uh, move on with the business of, of, of research uh, during this very unusual time. You know, I already appreciated the, the role that librarians and archivists play, but more so now uh, in, in terms of uh, appreciating some of the limitations they deal with, really appreciative of what they've been able to do in terms of granting me uh, materials that otherwise uh, I just really kind of would have been uh, spinning in circles. So I, I don't think it's said often enough, uh, the archivists uh, and, and the librarians really do so much for us to be able to do any of the research uh, that, that we do. Several of you, I think all of you actually mentioned all the limitations of the pandemic have hindered our research in certain aspects, but also given us more appreciation for those times when we can do it in person, while at the same time showing us some new directions and places to go that we might not have seen otherwise. So do you think that that's going to be kind of a legacy um, of the pandemic, that we will have more appreciation for the in-person uh, while identifying some places where things can be done separately or done online? Or do you have any other predictions for how uh, historical research more generally is gonna be conducted going forward? 
I wanted to mention that I think like in terms of what Jim was saying about something that we might think of as like academic bloat, I feel like we all have a new appreciation for the time that we have and how we need to use that time wisely. And I would be remiss if I didn't also mention that a lot of us had uh, with the with the shutdown of schools and other care facilities that we have had caretaking duties just expand exponentially. So you know, when a typical workday might be eight hours and it gets trimmed to, you know, the, the, the couple hours that you can snatch in between taking care of kids or, or family members, uh, you know, you really, there's, in, on, one, on the one hand, you have to find a, a source of efficiency that you might not have knew, known you had before. And on the other hand, I think, you know, this, this takeaway may feel may feel distinct, but I think it's really relevant that I think we all need to have a new appreciation for folks who are working under those kinds of limitations and including limitations to travel and limitations to getting to archives. You know, those of us who have have risen through the ranks and have tenure need to be able to uh, protect early career scholars who might have gaps in their CV because of caretaking issues or because of the, the difficulties of actually getting to the places where we where we're able to do our research. If you can't get on a plane to Spain uh, for one variety of reasons, you know, we are going to have to find more fortitude to finding ways to doing our research remotely, but we're also going to have to find some sense of balance um, in the ways that we consider what research other people are doing. I think, you know, Nick's, Nick's quick adjustment from one project to the other is just is an example of, you know, find, finding a way to, to pivot, but not everybody can pivot as quickly in, in, in trying circumstances. So I think one takeaway is just really that, that sense of, you know, we, we need to, as, a, as an academic community, understand the limitations that people face um, under trying circumstances and try to find ways, creative ways to deal with them or also simply to acknowledge that the, those obstacles exist. Yeah, I would really, really second what, what Sarah has just said. It, it would be a shame if we did emerge from this just bent on going back to doing things the way we did them before, um, especially in this question of, of, of equity. It, I think this has made us all realize that, you know, it, it's, it's a cliche by now, but, but the pandemic has emphasized the injustice and the inequity that exists in so many of the things that we, that we do. And it would, be, it would be a shame to just Go back to that, right? To not th and especially now that we've kind of learned the lesson of what it is like to, to be without access, which is really what we're what we're talking about. It's funny when when Nick was talking, I was thinking about how before the pandemic, those of us who work in U.S. institutions take for granted open stacks, right? And so many, but so many of our colleagues in Europe and in Latin America, when they come to the states, they just can't believe that you can roll you can roam the stacks. And I think we all know everyone. All scholars I know have personal stories about how their research was transformed by the book right next to the one they went to look for, right? Or, or, um, or maybe it was even misshelved. There are stories of people finding misshelved books that changed their changed their career, and somehow that's that's a that's another version of the same of the same story. So yeah, I do hope we can grab the opportunities that we've been given and not take for granted what we've taken for granted and be more compassionate and more, more human in, in the demands that we put on each other and in, in, on our students. Not, which is not to say you know, less rigor or anything like that. It's just more, more humanity, more understanding. I must say I um, had a similar experience. I was planning to go to Spain 
this past summer for research, I had to cancel those plans because of the pandemic. But then it got me thinking about the cost of that plane ticket in Turkey, where I'm living now. Most Turks would not have been able to go to Spain anyway, just because the the international prices are are so high compared to the incomes here. And so it got to me thinking how those kind of limitations a lot of people face those all the time, you know, and and you don't often think about that until you have those kind of experiences. And Foster, I, w- I would add to that, uh, you know, graduate students as well often, uh, also do not have limitless pocketbooks, as I think we can all uh, remember from 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 our, our grad school days. Um, you know, it, it seems like there was a a tension for a long time between well, if we if we digitize everything and everything's available online, people will never need to go to to say Spain. It, you know, it could be theoretically possible to write a history of Spain without having ever been there, without having really ever been part of the community of scholars there. And, and is that really a, a meaningful product? I think now we're, we're we're probably better equipped to talk about the the utility of having that sense of place and going there firsthand and and doing all these sort of things uh, that were hard to really uh, describe uh, previously. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we can now maybe move forward with uh, encouraging more digitization uh, and more accessibility that is more cost effective to, to, to people who want to do this sort of research, while also uh, ensuring that there is also uh, financial capability to get people there to experience firsthand uh, what it means to, to, to work on this, this history. So I want to thank all three of you for coming on the program. I think this has been a really fun conversation and one that was actually more optimistic than I expected. <laughs> I think it's true that let's, let's all hope that despite the frustrations of the current moment that there have been some things that we can learn from it. And like you said, Nick, that we can use to then go forward to a more positive way of thinking about how we do research. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.